You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture 9 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner, entitled According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity. Let's review what we have learned about the essence of the Christ event. In pre-Christian times, the human soul was able to ascend to the kingdoms of spirit only within the mysteries, and then only by suppressing normal eye consciousness, which today we experience in the outer physical world. With the appearance of the Christ came the possibility of maintaining eye consciousness as we enter the spiritual world, although for most individuals this possibility will become a reality only in the most distant future. This change was the greatest step ever taken in human and earthly evolution. All subsequent events in earthly history merely develop and apply the great impulse of the Christ event. To make this step possible, all the secrets of ancient initiation had to be recapitulated in a certain way. For example, in the ancient Egyptian and Hebrew mysteries, and this is still true today, aspirants experienced temptation while descending into their physical and etheric bodies. In the Greek mysteries, on the other hand, candidates for initiation experienced all the difficulties and dangers encountered when expanding into the macrocosm, another process we described in detail. The great outstanding individuality of Christ Jesus underwent both of these aspects of initiation to serve as a model for similar developments among all future humankind. In the mysteries, the eye remained suppressed and somewhat dreamy as the candidate's inner soul experienced an awakening of egoism and a desire for independence from the outer world. As we stated yesterday, we all depend on the outer world since we cannot create food from nothing. Because we are controlled by our physical nature, we succumb to the illusion that we are seeing the world and its intrinsic glory when in fact we are merely perceiving the consequences of our physicality. In the mysteries all aspirants to initiation went through this experience, but their state of consciousness was different from that of Christ Jesus, who accomplished this step on a very exalted level. Hence, in certain respects, the reports of what students of the ancient mysteries experienced resemble the accounts of the life of Christ Jesus. Through the Christ... The hidden events of the mysteries emerged into the arena of world history as a unique historical event. Let's consider an incident that occurred repeatedly in the ancient world, especially during the centuries just before the Christ's appearance. Painters or writers often acquired information about initiation practices and incorporated it into a painting or a book. In either case, the description may resemble what the Gospels tell us about the Christ event. In certain ancient mysteries, for example, after undergoing specific initial preparations, an aspirant would stand with outstretched arms, allowing the body to be bound to a kind of cross, and would remain there as the soul left the body to experience what we described, 
When we find such a painting or text today, we recognize it as a traditional account of what occurred in the mysteries, and we realize that the Gospels simply document pre-existing practices. There are numerous examples of accounts or illustrations that seem to prefigure the Gospels. In my book Christianity as Mystical Fact, I describe how the Gospels revive all the secrets of the ancient mysteries. Essentially, the Gospels simply repeat ancient descriptions of initiation. But why do events in Jesus' life recapitulate mystery initiation? Symbolic mystery processes had always taken place at the soul level, but now the Christ event raised them to the level of the eye and recast them as historical events. We must keep this firmly in mind. If we recognize the Christ event as an historical reenactment of earlier initiation rites, adapted for different human circumstances, we can understand the parallel between ancient initiation rites and gospel accounts of the life of Christ. <clears throat> Let's describe this similarity more exactly. For those destined to perceive it, the Christ event in Palestine, the baptism by John and the Jordan, the temptation, the crucifixion, and so forth, fulfilled the Essene prophecies. In its essential points, the historical life of Christ in a human body corresponds to the stages of initiation in the mysteries. In other words, the rules of initiation served as the model for an actual historical event. This, then, is the great secret. In the full view of history, for those capable of spiritual perception, the Christ openly re-enacted within the arena of history processes that were formerly buried in obscurity in the temples, emerging only through their consequences. We must bear in mind, however, that biographies at the time of the evangelists were not like modern biographies. The biographers of the ancient world did not crawl into every corner and collect every available scrap of information in an effort to present insignificant details as important features in a person's life. Our modern focus on thorough documentation prevents us from seeing the essentials. But for the evangelists, it was enough to present the single most essential aspect of the life of Christ Jesus, the fact that he re-enacted initiation on the great stage of world history. As another example shows, many people are baffled by similar recent discoveries. If we are familiar with ancient myths and legends, we recognize that many of them are accounts of clairvoyant perception of spiritual worlds, clothed in terms of sensory perception. Others, part of the myth of Prometheus, for example, are really no more than reports of mystery proceedings. In another example, we find repeated descriptions of Zeus accompanied by a lesser divinity who serves as his tempter. To say, quote, Pan tempted Zeus, quote, is quite in keeping with the Greek meaning. The manifold accounts of Zeus standing on a hill with Pan nearby and tempting him represented the process of descent into our own inner nature. We encounter our own lower nature, our egotistical pan nature, when we descend into the physical and etheric bodies. Ancient myths and symbols are filled with artistic representations of initiation candidates making their way into the spirit world. Many people are unable or unwilling to accept the facts. 
As a result, they are baffled by the discovery that images such as Pan, tempting Zeus, prefigure Christ's temptation, and that the Gospels simply record those images. Such people erroneously conclude that because the Gospels are collections of myths, they do not describe anything of substance, and that Christ must be a fictitious figure. Not long ago there was a popular cultural movement in Germany that dealt with the question of whether Christ Jesus actually existed. Again and again, with tremendous scholarship but with a gross lack of understanding, various myths and legends were repeated in attempts to demonstrate that none of the scenes described in the Gospels were original. Today it is futile to try to convince people of the true state of affairs, which is known to those who understand spiritual matters. Modern cultural movements develop in truly bizarre ways, and I mention specific occurrences only because as spiritual scientists we are repeatedly called upon to refute seemingly scholarly arguments against the facts presented by spiritual science. What I have told you here is the true situation. Gospel accounts did indeed originate in the mysteries. The Gospels apply the secret of initiation to a unique individuality and a unique occurrence. The fully conscious I, re-enacting what had previously occurred only in the mysteries and only under conditions of reduced consciousness. Hence it is not surprising to learn that almost none of what the Gospels have to say is new or unique. But earlier versions of the tradition had emphasized the need to ascend to the so-called kingdoms of heaven, which had not yet descended to the level of the human eye. It was a completely new idea that someone could experience the kingdoms of heaven within Malkuth, the earthly kingdom, while retaining eye consciousness, which had always been suppressed during initiation. This is why Christ Jesus preached about the kingdom, as described in Matthew, immediately following his temptation. He had to tell people that it was now possible to maintain eye consciousness during initiation, which had formerly suppressed the individual eye and allowed other beings to enter. This was the essential new aspect of what Christ emphasized. Not only was his life a re-enactment of initiatory events, but his sermon on the kingdom stated that everything previously promised to aspiring initiates was now available to all who experienced the I within, as exemplified by the Christ. Thus we see the, dif- the return of all the old teachings, but with one essential difference. Initiation could now be achieved within the I, whereas previously it could not. According to earlier mystery teachings, people had always looked up to the kingdoms of heaven, They realized that the blessings of the divine fatherly source of existence, while they did not descend into the human eye, could be achieved by working upward while the eye was suppressed. Only the details of attaining those blessings had changed. People had been told to look up to the kingdoms of the divine fatherly source of existence and wait for blessings to shine down upon them. The Christ simply added, that the will of the heavenly kingdoms must now penetrate the deepest nature of the human eye and become individual human will. In other words, the heavenly kingdoms must now descend to earth where the eye lives, and the will that is done above must also be done on earth. Suppose that every sentence of the Lord's Prayer existed previously and simply required this one change. 
Those who perceive more profoundly and sense the subtle but essential nuances will not be surprised that the sentences comprising the Lord's Prayer may have existed in earlier times. Such nuances evade superficial thinkers who conclude that the Lord's Prayer predated Christ Jesus, though they are not concerned with the meaning of Christianity because they do not understand it. They simply conclude that the entire Lord's Prayer predated Christ Jesus. Here you see the tremendous difference between true scriptural interpretation and a superficial approach. Those who notice the newer nuances will understand the differences between new and old, whereas those who do not may simply conclude that the Lord's Prayer appeared long before the Gospels were written. As spiritual scientists, we must consider such examples before we can begin to refute the amateurish, so-called, quote-unquote, scientific scholarship that finds its way into hundreds of newspapers. In fact, someone has collected examples with some similarity to the Lord's Prayer from the Talmud and other ancient sources. Please note, however, that this person did not discover the entire wording of the Lord's Prayer as such, but only individual sentences in various unrelated contexts. For purposes of comparison... Suppose that the first few sentences of Goethe's Faust also existed elsewhere, and that Goethe simply arranged them in the order we know today. Perhaps it would be possible to prove that some seventeenth-century student failed an exam and exclaimed to his father, quote, I have alas studied philosophy, and here I am for all my lore, the wretched fool I was before, unquote. Elsewhere another student, failing his medical studies, may have said, quote, I have alas studied medicine, and Unquote. Could we then suppose that Goethe simply combined these sentences to form the opening lines of Faust? This is truly, a, this is a truly absurd conclusion, but the principles and methods behind it are no different from those we encounter in biblical criticism. <clears throat> the following sentences, cobbled together in this way, supposedly produce the Lord's Prayer: "Our Father who art in heaven, have mercy on us. Hallowed be thy name, O Lord our God." and thy remembrance be glorified above in heaven as here below on earth. Thy kingdom rule over us now and forever. The holy men of ancient times tell us to show mercy to all and forgive whatever they have done to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom of heaven, and thou shalt rule in glory forever and ever. These sentences were culled from a number of different sources. While they do indeed add up to something resembling the Lord's Prayer, they lack any hint of the great significance of the Christ event. None of these sentences says that the kingdom of heaven will descend to our level. This version says, quote, May thy kingdom rule over us now and forever, unquote, not, quote, Thy kingdom come to us. Unquote. Superficial thinkers fail to notice this essential difference. And despite the fact that these sentences were compiled from not one but numerous libraries, they exclude one essential sentence of the Lord's Prayer, namely, quote, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, unquote. In other words, quote, May thy will intervene in the I, unquote. Even from the perspective of ordinary science, you can see the difference here between a semblance of research and a truly scientific method that considers every detail. And true research is indeed available when we are willing to consider it. I deliberately read these sentences from a published book, John M. Robertson's Christianity and Mythology. This book has been considered a modern gospel of sorts. 
A professor at a German university used it as the basis of a series of popular lectures on whether Jesus ever actually lived. As a result, Robertson's book quickly became famous and was translated into German so that those who do not know English could read it. Based on the facts I just described, the professor's response to his own question was that no available documents contain convincing evidence that Jesus ever existed as a person. Robertson's book is one of the best references in support of this position. Spiritual scientists, however, should be warned that there is much more to be learned from this book and its historical research into New Testament documents. Let me tell you about a typical example of such research, in quotes. According to Robertson, the Lord's Prayer is prefigured in all sorts of passages from the Talmud and far more ancient documents. He concludes that the Lord's Prayer is a compilation of previously existing prayer fragments and that Christ's existence was not necessary for people to learn to pray in this way. On the very next page, Robertson quotes a few sentences from a Chaldean prayer tablet addressed to the ancient Babylonian god Merodach. Quote, in the journey, excuse, excuse me, in the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society, October 1891, Mr. T. G. Pinches published for the first time the translation of a tablet discovered at Sapara in 1882, which includes the three, which includes the following lines addressed to Merodach. Quote, May the fullness of the world descend into the midst of your city. May your commandment be obeyed for all time to come. May the evil spirit dwell outside of you. Unquote. And the scholar who was so impressed by this passage adds, Quote, here we have a standard form of prayer that points directly to the Lord's Prayer and dates to perhaps 4000 B.C. Now, can you discover any reasonable similarity between these sentences and the Lord's Prayer? And yet this man considered these few sentences a standard form of prayer that was simply copied as the Lord's Prayer. Such examples are considered legitimate research in this field. Another reason for mentioning this among spiritual scientists is to ease any feelings of guilt that might result when you repeatedly hear that other research contradicts spiritual scientific research, or when you see in the press that the discovery of a tablet in Asia confirms that the Lord's Prayer existed as early as 4000 B.C. Obviously, we need to question how such quote-unquote facts are confirmed and on what basis. My purpose in mentioning this example is simply to reveal the basis of so-called scientific confirmations. We will find such scholarship wherever we go, and it is useful to know that the evidence contradicting spiritual science is often full of holes. But let's continue. The important point is that the evolutionary step that Christ Jesus inaugurated for humanity is based on maintaining full self-awareness during initiation. Christ began the initiation of the I, the I, as the fundamental core of the human being, is where all human nature comes together in our time. The other members of the human constitution are influenced by what Christ did on behalf of the I, as will become evident in very specific ways as human evolution progresses. This new development in human nature will become especially clear in these lectures. We know that human sensory perception and brain-based reason became fully developed, only a short time before the Christ appeared. This faculty was preceded by a certain type of clairvoyance, which all human beings once possessed, as you know from my lectures on early Atlantis. A certain level of clairvoyance persisted into early post-Atlantean times and then gradually receded. Until the Christ event, many people could still perceive the spiritual world while in certain states of consciousness at the point between sleeping and waking. 
For people in general this lower level of clairvoyance had another consequence in addition to the ability to perceive the spirit behind the physical world. In ancient times it was easy to influence human nature in a way that allowed spiritual perception to develop, but today it is relatively much more difficult to develop true clairvoyance. We see the last vestiges of the legacy of ancient clairvoyance in conditions such as sleepwalking, which cannot be considered normal. In ancient times, however, such states were quite normal and could be enhanced by specific practices that fostered not only spiritual perception but other capacities such as spiritual healing. Although we take pride in basing everything on historical fact today, our beliefs usually determine which facts we are willing to accept. As incredible as it may seem to people today, it is a historic fact that as recently as the time of Christ, clairvoyance could induce healing processes. Today people are more deeply engaged on the physical level and this kind of healing is no longer possible. In earlier times, when human souls were more accessible and flexible, people developed clairvoyance through specific practices and found their way into the spiritual world. And since the spiritual world is a healing element whose forces radiate even into the physical world, the cultivation of clairvoyance brought about healing. When people were sick, a healer could take specific measures to allow them to perceive the spiritual world, and healing spirit forces flowed into them. At that time, this kind of healing was quite common. Quote, temple healing, unquote, as it is described today, is amateurish in comparison. Evolution has moved on, and since that time, human souls have advanced from clairvoyance to a non-clairvoyant state. Thus, it is not surprising that the Gospels tell us that, as a result of the Christ event, the spirit world is now accessible not only to those who have retained the ancient clairvoyance, but also to those who have lost it in the course of human evolution. Let's look back to ancient times when human beings were blessed with spiritual perception and its riches. Advancing evolution eliminated this ability, and we became, quote, poor in spirit, unquote. But now the Christ has revealed that the forces of the heavenly kingdoms can flow into the eye even as it manifests on the physical plane. As a result, those who have lost their clairvoyance and hence the riches of the spiritual world can now experience those spiritual blessings within themselves. From now on, those who beg for spirit are blessed as well as those who are rich in spirit through ancient clairvoyance. The, quote, kingdoms of heaven, unquote, can flow into the human eye because Christ prepared the way. In other words, in ancient times, the ordinary condition of the human physical organism allowed the soul to partially leave it, thus becoming clairvoyant and, quote, rich in spirit, unquote. More recently, as the physical body has increased in density, which, by the way, cannot be proven anatomically, it has become increasingly impossible to become, quote, unquote, rich in the kingdom of the heavens. It is appropriate to say that the human condition today is poor in spirit, or begging for spirit. Nonetheless, the gift of Christ allows us to experience the kingdoms of the heavens. Thus the first sentence of the Beatitude states the new truth of the physical body. To give you a full picture of how the Christ event affected the human eye, we must describe how this event blessed each member of the human constitution in a new way. The new 
The new truth of the etheric body can be expressed as follows. The etheric body houses the principle of suffering. As you know from some of my lectures, a living entity can suffer damage to the etheric body only if it has an astral body. But the seat of suffering itself is the etheric body. Etheric healing had previously flowed from the spiritual world. But the new truth tells us we no longer need to leave the body and enter the spiritual world to alleviate suffering. Because a new force has entered the human etheric body through the Christ, we can be comforted during suffering without leaving the body if we establish a new relationship toward the world. Therefore the new truth of the ether body is, Blessed are those who suffer and find their way to the Christ for they can be filled with a new truth and experience comfort for all their suffering. They no longer need to attain a state of clairvoyant consciousness and receive the blessings of the spiritual world. What is the new truth of the astral body? Formerly, people tried to stifle the astral body's damaging instincts, suppressing their astral emotions, passions, and egoistic impulses in order to perceive higher worlds and find strength in the kingdoms of heaven. Since the coming of the Christ, however, we are meant to internalize the strength needed to harness and tame the passions and emotions of the astral body. Therefore the new truth of the astral body is, Blessed are those who become meek to the power of the eye, for they shall inherit the earthly kingdom. This sentence, the third beatitude, is very profound. Let's compare it to what we have learned from spiritual science. The astral body was added to the human constitution during the old moon period. Luciferic beings gained influence over human beings and implanted themselves in the astral body in particular. Consequently, human beings could not achieve their highest earthly goal directly. As we know, the luciferic beings remained behind at the old moon stage and blocked the appropriate development of humankind on earth. Now that Christ has descended to earth, however, the eye has been impregnated with his strength, and we humans can truly fulfill our earthly task by finding the strength within ourselves to subdue the astral body and drive out the luciferic influence. In other words, we can truly accomplish the purpose of earthly evolution if we are, quote-unquote, meek and strong enough in ourselves to subdue the astral body so that we do not become angry without the participation of the eye. This is the spiritual scientific meaning of the third beatitude. How will the other members of the human constitution be blessed or enhanced by the indwelling being of Christ? Like the body, the soul will be seized by the earnest and worthy power of the eye. If we want to begin to experience the Christ in ourselves, we must hunger and thirst in the sentient soul, just as the body unconsciously hungers and thirsts for food and drink. What was formerly described as, quote, thirsting for righteousness, unquote, in the most comprehensive sense, can now be achieved through the inner power of Christ. When our sentient souls have been filled with the power of Christ, we will find the ability within ourselves to satisfy our thirst for righteousness. As we might expect, the fifth beatitude is especially noteworthy because it applies specifically to the mind-soul. Those who have studied the human constitution in an outline of esoteric science or theosophy, or in my lectures over the years, that know know that the I holds together the three members of the human soul, the sentient soul, the mind soul, and the consciousness soul. 
We know, too, that the eye is only dimly conscious in the sentient soul, but comes into its own in the mind soul, where we become fully human. Our lower members, including the sentient soul, are governed by divine spiritual forces, but in the mind soul we become beings in our own right. The mind soul is where the eye lights up. Hence, in terms of attaining the power of Christ, the mind soul is different from the lower members of the human constitution. Specific divine beings are at work in our lower members, the physical, etheric, and astral bodies, and the sentient soul. And the virtues we develop are returned to these beings. The mind-soul becomes Christ-like, but must develop an attribute that is primarily human. When we begin to discover the mind-soul, we become less dependent on the surrounding forces of divine spirit. The mind-soul is human and the virtues it develops through the power of the Christ are related to our peers. We do not beseech the heavens for those virtues, nor are they a reward. Rather, they flow to and from beings like ourselves. Virtues radiating from the mind-soul return in kind. Curiously enough, the fifth beatitude demonstrates this quality. Even inferior translations cannot conceal the fact that this beatitude is different from all others. Quote, Blessed are those who show mercy, for mercy will be shown to them. Unquote. Radiating virtue shines back on us, as it must if we understand the spiritual scientific meaning of this statement. The next sentence refers to the consciousness so, in which the eye is fully expressed. It represents a new step upward. We know that the mind-soul was beginning to manifest when the Christ appeared. Today the consciousness-soul is beginning to manifest and we are beginning our ascent back to the spiritual world. We first become aware of the self in the mind-soul. But in the consciousness-soul the I develops fully and begins to regain the spiritual world. Those who receive the power of Christ find their way to God by allowing the eye to pour into the consciousness soul, where they experience its pure form for the first time. By experiencing Christ in the individual eye, and by receiving him into the consciousness soul, we find the way to our God. We have heard that in the physical body the eye is expressed in the blood, and in the blood's central organ, the heart. The sixth beatitude, therefore, must state that the eye through the faculty it grants to the blood and the heart, also participates in divinity. And how does this sentence read? Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. The translation is not especially good, but it will do for our purposes. Thus we see how spiritual science illuminates the structure of these marvelous sentences, which Christ Jesus proclaimed to his intimate pupils after resisting temptation in the desert. The next Beatitudes relate to how we grow into the higher members of the human constitution, the spirit self, life spirit, and spirit body. They each provide a mere suggestion of something that a few experience today, but that will become increasingly common in the future. The seventh Beatitude relates to the spirit self. Quote, Blessed are those who bring the spirit self, the first spiritual member, into themselves, for they shall be called the children of God. Unquote. The first member of the upper trinity has now entered them. They have taken in divinity and now manifest it. The next beatitude indicates 
that only the chosen few, those who completely understand what the future holds for all humankind, will succeed in developing the life spirit, the life spirit which future humanity will call quote, fully receiving the Christ within, unquote, is already available to a select few. But because so few are chosen, they are misunderstood and persecuted. Quote, Blessed are those who suffer persecution for the cause of right, for they will find the kingdoms of the heavens within themselves. Unquote. This refers to those few who represent a future human condition. And finally, quote, Blessed are you when you suffer insults and persecution for my sake. Unquote. This sentence was intended only for the Christ's most intimate pupils and refers to the ninth member of the human constitution, the spirit body. These marvelous sentences demonstrate how the I becomes Christ-like, manifesting within and blessing the nine members of the human constitution. These grand and majestic sentences, Matthews 5, 3-11, follow the temptation described in Matthew, and they describe how the power of Christ will influence our ninefold human nature in the distant future. In the near future, however, the power of Christ will work in the so-called children of God, those specially graced few who are already illuminated by the Spirit Self. It is marvelous to observe how the Beatitudes begin to begin by specifically describing the members already present and become less specific in the last sentences which apply to the distant future. And again we encounter a superficial objection. In the book mentioned earlier there is a chapter on the Beatitudes in which the author cobbles together sentences that superficially resemble the Beatitudes of Matthew. He has no idea, however, that the Beatitudes apply to the Christ-imbued human eye, and so he has no inkling of their true significance. He tells of a Slavic Enoch, not the familiar Enoch, and his nine so-called Beatitudes written very early in the Christian era, from which, according to Robertson, the true Beatitudes may have been copied. Quote, One Blessed is he who fears the name of the Lord and serves before his countenance without ceasing. 2. Blessed is he who pronounces judgment not for payment, but for the sake of righteousness, expecting nothing in return, for he in turn shall be granted a pure judgment. 3. Blessed is he who clothes the naked and gives his bread to the hungry. 4. Blessed is he who judges in favor of orphans and widows and stands by those who experience injustice. 5. Blessed is he who turns away from the inconstant path of this vain world and walks the just path that leads to eternal life. 6. Blessed is he who sows seeds of justice, for he shall harvest sevenfold. 7. Blessed is he in whom truth dwells, so that he tells his neighbor the truth. 8. Blessed is he who has love on his lips and meekness in his heart. 9. Blessed is he who understands every word of the Lord and praises the Lord God. The sentences are all well and good, but if you liken them to the Beatitudes of Matthew, you have assumed the exoteric, superficial perspective of those who use the similarities among world religions to conclude that they are all the same. Such people miss the point completely. Although the Beatitudes of the Slavic Enoch list a number of good and universally valid principles, they really have nothing to do with that time, of, that time of transition when the power of the eye was being introduced into human nature. Only when we acknowledge this essential aspect do we notice that human evolution is constantly progressing and moving from one stage to the next. Individuals are not born into physical bodies in a later millennium to repeat their earlier experiences, 
they must experience the progress that humankind has made in the interim. This is the meaning of history and the meaning of human evolution. And every page of Matthew speaks of this meaning. The end of Lecture 9, given in Bern, September 9, 1910.